You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 337 and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Tori Wong is a software engineer from Denver, Colorado. She works for Gusto, a software company that builds payroll benefits and more for small businesses. In her free time, Tori enjoys all things outdoors, backcountry skiing, hiking, triathlons, and recently got into woodworking. She's currently 35 weeks pregnant, expecting her first kid. Welcome to the show, Tori. Thanks, Brittany. Hello from Denver. Tori, what is your developer origin story? Well, I started actually as a mechanical engineer. I graduated from Purdue University in Indiana back in 2012. Uh, My mom, however, is a software engineering professor. So really what I was trying to do is uh, find my own path. Uh, I, I wanted to be in a STEM field while still doing my own thing. So I chose mechanical engineering uh, and I loved it in school, but I tried mechanical engineering as a career for two years after school and the real world is very different uh, from academia. It was not as technical as I had hoped. All the really cool technical jobs require at least a master's degree or a decade of experience. And I also encountered a lot of discrimination, sexual harassment. Uh, It's an older, heavily male-dominated industry. So coming right out of college uh, as a woman into my career uh, was a little bit difficult. You stick out like a sore thumb. So ultimately, I quit my job uh, in mechanical engineering as a career entirely and moved to Peoria, Illinois, where my fiancé lived. Uh, and I spent a year or two trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life while well, my fiance and eventually husband supported the two of us. And I actually started a dog running company. Uh, so I had this idea that I wanted to build an app kind of like WAG. Have you heard of uh, WAG, the dog walking app? I sure have. I have a chocolate lab named George. So yes, very familiar. Oh, awesome. Okay, so this was before WAG was a big thing. Uh, I wanted to build this dog running app and connect people with active dogs to runners that lived in their neighborhood. Uh, It's kind of a goofy idea. And I actually started the company. I had about five people running for dog jog at one point. And when I really started digging into creating this app, I realized that I loved uh, everything about it. I love trying to understand how the database should be modeled, pick which technologies I should use, And I should also add, I didn't know anything about starting a business or building software, so I was kind of just goofing around. And as I was working on this dog jog app, I realized that this is what I should actually be doing. I should learn how to be a software engineer, which I should have done from the beginning. shouldn't have tried to go my own path, just embrace that I was going to do what my mom already did. Um, So I went to one of those coding schools. Uh, called Dev Bootcamp in Chicago. They're shut down now, but at the time it was an 18-week program. Uh, I learned how to code. It was a Ruby on Rails coding school, so I was coding in Ruby. And after I finished the program, I worked for two different startups over the course of about like two or three years until I found Gusto. And really, I found my passion in software engineering. I absolutely love everything about it. I love working with startups. And I'm really glad I took all of those risks I did to kind of find my way to becoming a software developer. 
I love that. It's a great origin story, and I'm especially a big fan of the roundabout stories because I have one as well. And I truly believe that while we were probably destined to be web developers, that those experiences that we had beforehand definitely probably enhance the uh, the developer experience that we have now. Oh, definitely. I think especially my experience with trying to start a company as goofy as it was with this dog running app, I think it it gave me some interesting insight into um, thinking about product and kind of having more of a business mindset as a developer. Uh, so, and I also think I appreciate it a lot more because I had to fight for it a little bit. I love that. So, what was the phone call like when you told your mom you were going to become a software developer? Oh, she's so happy. I mean, she really wants someone in our family to get a PhD, and short of that, she's very very glad that. I'm a software developer because my sister is an artist, which she also fully appreciates. And my brother uh, works in law enforcement. So she wants someone to either get a PhD or (laughs) be in software. So she's very happy about it. That's amazing. So I do want to ask something that we touched upon in the bio. So how has it been being pregnant while working from home? Honestly, it has been amazing. Uh, First of all, I can take a nap if I need to, (laughs) which as I get further along in my pregnancy has become a little bit more of a requirement. No need to buy a ton of maternity clothes. It's uh, really nice just being able to work in my uh, own office. And while Gusto does have snacks available all the time, it is really nice having the kitchen like right next to my office so I can get a snack whenever I need. Well, as someone who is not pregnant, I still appreciate having my own kitchen. So I absolutely understand (laughs) what you're talking about because it's never quite the same bringing food from home to make in the office, having your full cookware. There's just nothing that can beat that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Especially now that I'm having very specific cravings for certain types of food. So it's, it's good to not have to stash that away under my desk or anything. For sure. So we have had one of your colleagues, Kali Sutton, on the show, and he did an excellent job of explaining about Gusto, and we will link that up in the show notes. But Tori, I'd like to dig into what your role is at Gusto. Yeah, so I'm a software engineer on the partners engineering team. Uh, My team is basically responsible for building out the experience for accountants on Gusto. So while Gusto specializes in small business, we have this entire platform for accountants that allows them to manage multiple clients. And it's, it's a pretty awesome platform. We provide a lot of tools to help accountants give personalized advice to their clients. They receive revenue share for clients they bring on to Gusto. And I actually just worked on a project that recommends some of our accounting partners to small businesses. So now we're bringing accountants new clients. Uh, just generally, I'm very passionate about the product. I think it's cool being able to build something and see it immediately be helpful to so many people, especially small business. So essentially my job is building Gusto for accountants and I really just have a typical product engineering job. So the reason that I brought you onto the show is that I came across the excellent article that you wrote under the Gusto engineering blog called Chipping Away at a Monolith. So there was a period of time where developers were really sheepish about having a monolith. However, boldly at the beginning of your article, you stated that Gusto had a monolith problem, but it was a good thing. So can you explain why? Yeah, I would love to. So really, you can only have a monolith problem to the extent that Gusto does after years of building your software. First of all, that means you've already been around for a while. And in the startup world, that is a big success right off the bat. Uh, I wasn't around in Gusto's early years when they were known as Zen Payroll. 
But from my experience working with startups right out of Dev Bootcamp, I can tell you that you are not worried about creating a monolith. I mean, you should be focused on launching your product, uh, doing it quickly, getting yourself out there, finding as many users as possible, and beating the competition. So while you might might be trying to build things in a scalable way, it's it's really impossible to see too from that short distance where patterns are going to appear in your code base. Uh, so I would argue that most of the work you do early on in the life of a company to prevent the creation of a monolith is kind of pointless because you don't really know where the patterns are yet. They haven't appeared. By the time you have a monolith problem, like I said, you've been around for a while, so you can start to see these patterns. Hopefully by that time, you're in a position where you're mature enough as a company that you have the space to spend some time on tech debt and addressing those patterns in your app. So the TLDR of that is, you can't really see these patterns, these domain patterns, until you've had enough time to build out your software. And that means you've already had some success because you've survived long enough to write that much code. That's a really positive way of looking at it. So from your personal experience, when do you know it's time to build a service outside of a monolith? I think that there are two things that really indicate you should start looking at breaking down your monolith. The first, again, is that you're going to see these patterns emerging in your code. You're going to see where these domains should be and where your boundaries should lie. Uh, the second thing would be uh, more of a, a business consideration uh, that spending time breaking down your monolith, spending time separating out your software is going to bring you more benefits than actually focusing on building those new features. So. Again, early on in a company's life, it might make more sense to spend a lot of time building out those new features because you want to get your product out there quickly. But once you ha are able to see these patterns, uh, that's when you've earned the right to work on this monolith problem. I agree with you as well. For me, I've had situations where the company wants to experiment, and so it doesn't make sense to experiment directly into the monolith, and that might be where you spin out a service in order to do that experiment. And should it go well, you might incorporate it back into the monolith, but you don't want it to be a situation where you want to try something new in the market, but you're really trying to jam that square peg into that round hole. And so it's, it's so important to understand that it's okay to spin outside of the monolith as long as there's a real reason and direction to it. I completely agree with that. I, I think that my team, the Partners Engineering team, is a great example because our team actually started as a hackathon project uh, by an engineer at Gusto. So they were building out this accountant platform as quickly as they could and throwing it out there. And at this point, it's so successful. We have an entire team working on it and it's very clear to us where our boundaries should be. So now is for sure the time that we should be separating ourselves and clearly defining the partner's domain. I also wanna add that we haven't actually, uh, we're not sure we're going to build partners entirely outside the monolith. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that. So since I wrote this article, there have been more discussions at Gusto about creating a modular monolith. I'm still learning what that means, uh, but basically uh, partners would create its own domain within the Gusto monolith with clearly defined boundaries. So the work that my coworker Andrew Grex and I did in the, from the blog post would still be relevant because you still need to have clearly defined domains within the monolith with those clear boundaries, um, but that means that you wouldn't necessarily be building a separate service. 
because services come with their own challenges. I mean, tracking errors across different code bases, speed between network requests, generally managing the different code bases and how they communicate. Uh, so I think our team might actually be looking more at going a modular monolith route, but we're still trying to figure it out. That is so interesting. And I absolutely love the episodes of the podcast where I learn a new concept and modular monolith is definitely a new one for me. So I really appreciate you bringing that up. And while I'm going to continue to ask you questions about the the Gusto article that you wrote, definitely going to keep that in mind. That is a fascinating concept. So step-by-step, let's walk through what you did to extract your partner's app. And listeners, this is, of course, going to be linked in the show notes, but I'm sure Tori is going to have a way of explaining it that's going to be quite easy to understand from a audio standpoint. Our team still has a long way to go with being a completely separate domain. We have a guy on our team named Sean Katona, and we joke that partners isn't going to be fully separated until he turns 41, so we refer to that goal as uh, SK41 when our team is completely separated in its own domain. The first thing I did was start with a deep dive into our models and how they're all intertwined. Basically, I did a search for all of the model files that Partners Engineering owns, opened up a Google Doc and pasted the file names in there. From there, I analyzed each model and tried to determine if they truly belonged in our domain. I was surprised to find that many did not if we were to have a a completely separated uh, modular monolith gusto. For example, there were some models we use for authorization that are assigned to us, but ultimately would belong in some sort of user role domain. So what I was trying to accomplish with this analysis of our models was finding the simplest, clearest spot that we could start to start separating things out. I wanted to find a model that clearly belonged in partners and also wasn't insanely complicated. We have a model called accounting firm and you can tell by the name that it belongs in the partners domain. So we decided to start there. Now that I have the model, I did a full analysis of all the callbacks, methods, concerns, everything tying accounting firm to something that did not belong in our domain. These were really the fuzzy areas where we needed to define our boundaries. Again, we wanted to start with the easiest thing and the thing that would be most useful. So there's another model called company. And as you can imagine at a payroll software company, company is kind of a God model. Uh, It clearly does not belong in our domain, but there are many ways accounting firm is tied to company. And one uh, one of them is that accounting firms through the accountant client relationship can be connected to a company. So we wanted to start by defining this boundary. And we wanted to really remove any references specifically to a method called accounting firm dot companies and replace it with services. What this means is within our domain, within the partner's domain, we should own the accounting firm ID and the IDs of all the companies that are clients of that firm. However, if we want to pull company information into the partner's domain, we need to call a service that lives in Gusto, the larger Gusto domain, to get that company information from some IDs that we pass in. And the data that is returned from these services should be something like a value object. It shouldn't be a magical active record object. Passing active record objects back and forth is the opposite of unbundling because they are so intertwined. So we just wanted to pass data between these services. After creating the necessary services, we had to replace accounting firm.companies everywhere. And this part was pretty scary because 
we're worried that we might miss an instance of accounting from tech companies and break the experience for the user. So we ended up replacing all of the instances of the company's method we could find. And before deleting the company's method, we added some logging to warn us if the method was being used at all. That way, if we did miss something, there'd be a warning without breaking the customer experience and we can go and fix that one instance. So luckily for us, after we identified this accounting from company relationship, we wanted to separate, made all the services, uh, replaced all the instances of that method and added that logging. Everything went really smoothly. Companies wasn't actually used anywhere else. We managed to find all the instances where it was used and delete that method. So now we're one step closer uh, by having these, this, these services in Gusto and services in accounting firm completely separated to having a well-defined partner's domain and a well-defined partner's boundary from the rest of Gusto. So very few people can talk through code through an audio standpoint like that. And that was fantastic, Tori. I super appreciate you doing that. Oh, great. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate you saying that. So you mentioned that you did do some custom logging, but you found some orphan code as you were working. So I think this is a common use case for a lot of developers out there is that we write a lot of legacy code, we end up deleting references to it, but then we don't actually delete the methods themselves. So do you have any advice for listeners for how they can spot orphaned code? Yeah, sure. Luckily for me, it was pretty obvious. While I was going through and analyzing accounting firm, a simple search in our code base again, seeing as we have a monolith, there's just one place to search, revealed that some of the orphan methods were not being used anywhere. Also, the method purposes seemed out of date. They weren't doing anything that, based on my knowledge of our code base, uh, they weren't doing anything useful. And that, that does take a little bit of knowledge of your code base and how it works. But basically searching the code base, knowing what the methods did, I was able to identify that they could just be deleted. You could use the method that my coworker Grex and I did to ensure that we could actually delete companies and add some logging if you're scared of deleting the orphan code. But for me, it was obvious that they weren't being used, so I was just able to delete them. I'm not sure what you would do if you were just coming into a big code base and searching for orphan code anywhere. I, the, the method that I took to find the orphan code in accounting firm was to go through everything step by step, so that would be way too much for a big code base. But I'm sure someone somewhere has built a tool for, for doing this and identifying orphan code. Yeah, so Joshua Clayton at ThoughtBot created a repository called Unused and as since has moved out from his personal account into an actual organization. And I've used it where you use git tags to tag a certain um, language in your uh, code base. And it will attempt to look for references that point to that method and then suggest to you whether or not they can be deleted. Now, that being said, it's not perfect. And I have deleted methods before that were in fact being used by something else in the application. So I might delete a method, uh, a Ruby method that was actually being used by JavaScript. And because they're not of the same domain, they weren't picked up. And so you definitely need to run your test suite against any deletions. But I did want to confirm with you, is there anything more satisfying than opening a pull request that has a massive amount of deletions? Oh, definitely not. My whole team gets very excited with pull requests that are mostly deleted code. Absolutely, so do I. So in your Yak Shave section, you did note that you came across a lot of to-dos as you were doing this work. So because you're touching so many files in this big monolith, you're gonna see some improvements that could be made. 
you were very sure to stay on the course and make sure that you didn't go into like a refactor frenzy when you were really supposed to be focused on this extraction. So how did you keep track of all those to-dos and did you put them in your, your bug tracker and did you label them as technical debt? How did that whole process work? Yeah, sure. And for anyone who's not familiar with yak shaving, that's something that the technical lead on our team, he loves that term. And basically it just means going down a rabbit hole. I had never heard of it until I started working with him. Uh, But we use Jira very heavily on our team. And we have a backlog of items that our team could work on at any point uh, in some of its tech debt, some of its non-urgent bugs. So my coworker and I created a ticket for any technical debt that we found and left heavy details on what the issue was and how it could potentially be solved in the future. And we just kind of threw it out there into the ether. So obviously that's not, that's a, a little bit of a, a dangerous solution because some of the problems were picked up in future cycles and some were not. And that's the danger with technical debt. If you don't solve it immediately, there's always a chance it will never be fixed. However, I think the bigger danger here was if we had gotten off track, if we had decided to shave the yak and dig into this additional technical debt, we wouldn't have met our deadline. Our manager gave us a a very strong deadline of two weeks to complete this project. So it was much more important for us to keep focused on the task of hand and make some improvements uh, and just note down things that could be improved in the future. Since if we had been distracted shaving the yak, we never would have time to make the improvements that we were able to make. For sure. And one of my favorite things about tickets that come out of, like, essentially you were doing a code audit. One of my favorite things about those kinds of tickets is they are the perfect tickets to assign to a junior developer because someone who's already experienced in the code base has said, yes, I think we can do better here. And so you're giving permission to that junior developer to really take that method and refactor it. And really the directive there is it's currently working. We want it to continue to work, but we can do better. So I love those kind of tickets that get generated. Definitely. And I couldn't agree with you more about, I think you learn so much from these refactoring tickets because they do tend to lead you down a rabbit hole. You know, you're looking at the immediate problem and suddenly you're looking at how the callback on this one model connects to this other model. And, and I think as a junior developer, there's no better way, or even just as a new developer, that's a really good way to be introduced to a code base. Agreed. So let's flash forward to the future where if you don't go with uh, the other solution, you have both the monolith and a separated service. So did you have a plan at Gusto for keeping those code bases synced together? Yeah, actually I can speak about one of our code bases that is separate. Uh, It's called the partner directory and separate code base. It has its own database. It's a pretty simple app. Basically any accountant that joins our partner program gets a profile in our partner directory. And it's a search service that allows people to easily find accountants on Gusto, view the accounting firm details, the software that they use, photos, all that good stuff. And this app is pretty small. It's only updated in a few places from Gusto, so it's pretty simple to keep everything synced. But as a precaution, we do run a scheduled job ensuring that the partner directory code base is synced with Gusto wherever our data is duplicated, just in case something is missed for whatever reason. And I think the key thing to note here is that we have one clearly defined source of truth, and that is Gusto. So while our partner directory has some duplicate data from Gusto for speed purposes, especially for search, the one source of truth is Gusto's database. So if there was ever a debate between which was true, we would go with Gusto. 
I like having that. I like having that fail safe just in case, you know, you need to rectify a difference between two things. If you know that you trust your database, you can pretty much trust anything. Definitely. And I really like having this scheduled job because I feel like stuff just goes wrong that you can't predict. So it's good to have a backup too, to just ensure that everything gets caught. Absolutely. And I imagine at this point, your engineering team is getting fairly large as well. It is. Our partners team definitely has been growing. So that's been pretty cool to see. Amazing. So I ask all my guests this, but what are your thoughts on the future of the Ruby and Rails communities? It seems to me that Ruby on Rails is officially a mature technology, or maybe it has been for a while, and I'm just way behind the times. Uh, Again, I've only been working in Rails for, for two years now. But more and more companies like Gusto that started a while ago with Ruby on Rails are growing up and getting bigger. And scalability and performance are becoming top priorities. It appears to me that a common complaint for Ruby on Rails is scalability and slow performance. I think the issue here is that a lot of the easy to use Rails magic does not help with scalability. It may allow you to build quickly, but it will not result in performant code. So it really requires a more skilled developer to understand how to use Ruby on Rails in a way that will allow for scalability. And I think that's the crux of one of the main complaints of the issue, that inexperienced developers can too easily build something that is non-performant. And it would be great to see more work in that area. I still feel so new to Ruby on Rails, so I'm not sure exactly what that would look like. That's a great opinion, and I couldn't agree with you more. And I feel like there are some developers out there, especially ones that work at large-scale services like Shopify and GitHub working on this. But I have a feeling we're going to see some innovations come out of Gusto as well. I hope so. So, Tori, how can listeners follow you? The best way to follow me is on my Medium page. I have another blog post coming out in September, hopefully before this baby boy shows up, about shipping new features to customer quickly by having an experimentation mindset. You can also add me on LinkedIn. I pretty much accept all invites. I would love to chat with anyone about what has been discussed on this podcast. Wonderful. Well, we are so excited to have you in our community, and I, I for one, cannot wait to read what you publish in September. I really enjoy all the ideas that you brought to the show today, and thank you so much for being in our community, and congratulations on your upcoming baby. Thank you so much, Brittany. I really enjoyed speaking with you today. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review, and thank you for listening.